0: Hello everybody, thank you for joining me for another episode of Keeping It Real. Today, we're talking about a very special individual. I like to call him the Beast, David Goggins. And this is deconstructing who that man is. The Beast, I like to call David Goggins, is a phenomenal man who is a retired Navy SEAL. He's 45 years old now. And he has had a phenomenal career in the military. But besides that, his accomplishments and who he is, is hands down one of the toughest son of a bitches I have ever reviewed in my life. And many would agree, probably a lot would call him the toughest man in the world. Let's go over a small list of Mr. Goggins' impressive accomplishments. I can't list them all, but I can sure give you a general idea of what he has accomplished so you can drop your jaw in amazement like I did. All right. He is the only member of the United States Armed Forces to complete Navy SEALs training, including three hell weeks to get there. Two times he had to repeat the hell week, obviously, because... He was disqualified for injuries or uh, being sick. He had pneumonia, but that didn't stop him. He still completed the hell weeks, but he just didn't pass their uh, criteria. So without being injured and without being sick the third time, he still made it through it. But with flying colors, he passed the bar. And Hell Week is nothing easy for anybody to make it through. Navy SEALs Hell Week. <laughs> Check that out. Give that a Wikipedia review if you want to find out what that's about. Um, He's also completed U.S. Army Ranger School and Air Force Tactical Air Controller Training. He was also in live combat in Iraq. Weighing in at around 300 pounds, he attempted to enroll in Navy SEALs training. The recruiter told David he had three months to lose 100 pounds and there's no way he would make it. Well, guess what? In less than three months, he was back in front of that recruiter weighing 190 pounds in less than three months, folks. He did nothing but... Train in between eating and sleeping. David has competed in over 60 ultra triathlons and ultra marathons. His longest race is 320 miles. Yeah. He averages around fifth place, but regularly makes top three. He also plays first at many of these competitions. Phenomenal. In 2013, Mr. Goggins set the Guinness World Records for chin-ups, completing 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. And in the process, he made his hands into roast beef. No problem for Mr. Goggins. What doesn't kill this man, seriously, makes him stronger. Goggins wakes up every day and runs 10 to 15 miles before he starts his day, and that's at 3 o'clock in the morning. Motivation is not what Goggins believes in at all. It's fleeting, he says. He bases his decisions on drive and the 40% rule, which he has made up himself. But I'll tell you more on that later because it's a phenomenal rule. Great one to base your life off of if you don't want to be a big, fat pussy. All right. Goggins has had some injuries. Being this hardcore And also just some bad luck. He started life with some setbacks that he had to overcome as well. As a child, he survived his father's constant mental and physical abuse, not only to him, but his mother as well. His town was full of bigotry, which was continuously aimed at him. The Ku Klux Klan had events, rallies. They were in parades in his town. His first car he got had nigger spray painted across it. That's what this man had to fight against. Yes, he's a man of color, if you didn't know that already. I don't think I mentioned it. He's a black man. So he was very um, set back with fear and cowardice as a youth because he had to face these bigots and downright cowardly pieces of shit that picked on him when he was a child and they did so in groups um he overcame a stutter obesity and he was considered a lower class intelligence in his grade in his um not grade i shouldn't say in his elementary years and of course, he had crushingly low self esteem. Didn't ha- help that his dad treated him like a dog and beat him all the time. And then kids at school were picking on him constantly, and the racial slurs and the Klu Klux Klan running around in your na- neighborhood. Ugh. That would screw up anybody mentally. As a grown up, his kidneys have shut down on him because he ran too many miles. Pissed blood from that incident and shit himself. Wonderful. Oh, and, and during that run, he also broke all the metatarsals in his foot, fractured them. Um he has had four knee operations, hamstring surgery, appendix surgery, twenty-five foot operations because of all this running he does. Yeah. Only in 2010, after most of the amazing achievements that he has accomplished that I've listed off so far, he found out he had a congenital heart defect, ASD, or considered a hole in your heart. His was only functioning at 75%. 75% capacity for all this time that he achieved all this shit. His heart was not even like yours and mine at 100%. That did not stop this man. That's how sensational and phenomenal a human being, Mr. David Goggins, is. What would it be like to live life with no excuses, completely giving 100%? Goggins' life story and philosophies can give us some insight on that possibility. Goggins was born in New York in 1975. As a child, most people remember years of carefree play and being surrounded by the loving guidance of their parents. Well, not David or his family. He had a tyrannical father that was physically and mentally abusive to him, his brother, and his mother. Not only that, they all provided slave labor for his business. Yeah, a roller skating rink. After leaving school for the day, David and the rest of the family provided labor from the moment the kids got out of school till 12 each night. Then they would all sleep in a back room after they finished work. But sleep was near impossible as the speakers blared music late into the early morning, making David fall asleep many times during his school hours. Self-admittedly, David says he is not the smartest guy in school he was thought to have a learning disability. The lack of sleep surely didn't help him. At age eight, his mother planned a way to escape his tyrant father's abuse. No more being beat or performing slave labor. So she used a credit card in her name, and she set her and the boys up in a neighboring town somewhere the father couldn't track. Unfortunately, David's older brother would not leave. So David and his mother set off to start their new life, and they were on their own. The new life was in Indiana. Escaping the abuse was wonderful, but now they had no money. David's mom had no skills to get a good job, so they lived in poverty. Yep, broke as a joke. Government housing. And assistance. It was their only hope. David had a stutter and other stress-related problems related to all the toxic stress and abuse he suffered from his fucking shitty father. As an adult, he looks back and realizes he was stuck in fight or flight, constantly scouting for danger. He got stuck in that gear. He couldn't focus or memorize anything he learned. After continuous... F's on all of his assignments and failed tests. David realized his only hope was cheating. So he became an expert at this. The downside was he wasn't learning anything. He could barely even read into his teenage years. He became a chameleon, just doing everything he could To get along with everybody else and make friends. He was a fake. Everything about him was fake. Fear was literally ruling David's life. And that's a shitty thing. Lots of people can relate to this. The mirroring effect. Whatever group of people you get around, you try and be like them. Do whatever they're doing say whatever they're saying, adopt their accent or their sense of humor, just so you can get along with them. Fuck that. David didn't know this at the time, but being authentic and being who you truly are is what gives you power. Let's hear more about Mr. Goggins childhood from his own mouth. This is an interview Goggins had with Joe Rogan. It's a
1: long process, right? Um, I, my dad beat the shit out of me when I was growing up. We I, I was the first black baby born in this hospital called Miller Fillmore in Buffalo, New York. My dad owned skating rinks, he owned bars, he ran prostitutes from Canada to Buffalo, New York. My dad was a big time pimp, big time. Anything bad about a person, big time hustler, he was American, you know that, that, that I'm with him, Daniel Washington. Mm-hmm. He was that, but not that bad. Right. You know, he wasn't that big. But that's what it reminds me of. He was that kind of guy. And um, beat the shit out of me, the shit out, you know, out of my mom. There was an incident one time when my mom got knocked out on top of the stairs, and they drug her down the stairs by her hair. And at six years old, um, I'll never forget this. In my mind, I, I was always afraid. My whole life, I was afraid. But I had this fucking voice, this this conscience, that would always be battling me, saying, "Hey, you got to get up and do something." I didn't want to do shit. You know, I, I was just afraid. But I would that that voice would force me to get up. And my dad, you know, I try to beat him up, whatever, at six, and I get my ass kicked. So this went on for several years. And I have a big-time learning disability. Cause My dad didn't believe in us going to school. So my dad, it was about the business, the skating rink and the bar. So the skating rink opened about 7 o'clock at night. And this is when, the time I was able to walk. So about, five, you know, four, five, six years old, eight, nine. And I go to this, you know skating rink at 7 o'clock at night. And I worked the skating rink until 10 at night. And then we would scrape the gum off the floors and we cleaned the whole skating rink up. And then my dad had an office. And my brother and myself would sleep in the office. And my mom would go upstairs and work the bar until three o'clock in the morning. And then they cleaned the bar up. So after all that shit was done with, going to school rarely happened. So when I went to school, I was all kind of, you know, my my learned disability, I had social anxiety. I was just a jacked up kid from living in this tortured home. From the outside looking in, we lived in an all-white neighborhood, and then we would travel to the ghetto of Buffalo, New York, where the skating rink was at. So we we worked around mostly blacks, and I lived around mostly whites, but no one knew what was going on in that house on 201 Paradise Road. You know, it's crazy. But um, my mom got courage to finally leave him when I was about eight years old. We moved to a small town in Brazil, Indiana, and that's when the real war started for me. And Brazil Indiana is a small town. Great people, a lot of great people. And I say that because a lot of people get offended. And, and I'm, I'm going to get to the point where they get offended. There was about maybe 10 black families at about 10,000 people in the town. And in 1995, the KKK marched in the 4th of July parade. So this was a—not everybody was racist. There was a lot of good people. Some of the best people I knew was there, but there was also a lot of racism there. So me being one of the few black kids in that you know in that area— you know, it, it kind of haunts you. I had stuff on my notebook, you know, nigga, we're going to kill you on my Spanish notebook. They had that on my car, nigga, we're going to kill you. This is early 90s. And um, so even though I showed it didn't hurt me, it was jacking me up. So all the insecurities I have when I was a kid with my father, I've moved into this area here and it just got worse and worse and worse. And this shit haunted me. And that voice that I talked about, it kept talking louder and louder and louder, but I was doing nothing about it. And I decided to make moves. And I cheated all through school. And it's, it's kind of humbling to talk about my story sometimes. And it's um, it's, it's also embarrassing, but um, it's real. It's who the fuck I am. It's, it's, it's what I am. It's, it's, it's what created me. And copy from the fourth grade to the to, to my junior year in high school on every assignment,
0: So in Goggin's late teens, he locked on to something positive to aim for, the U.S. Air Force. So he buckled down and he learned how to read. He got in good physical shape and then he went to a recruiter's office and he got accepted. His aim was to specialize in pararescue. That was uh, parachuting into war zones or enemy territory to rescue downed pilots. David had an extremely difficult test upcoming, though. Swimming. Yes. Not only did he not know how to swim, he was fucking terrified of the water. He eventually found a way out. A routine medical exam picked up sickle cell anemia, a blood disease. He could have pressed on, but this was a reasonable excuse to quit. And he was scared shitless of drowning in the water. He couldn't swim. His buoyancy, he just never figured out how to do this. So, he knew he should stay, but he let fear get the best of him. And he used that excuse to bail out, see his commanding officer, and quit. By 1999, his military dreams seemed vanquished. He started working as an exterminator. Yes, pest control, killing cockroaches and rodents. What a shitty fucking job. He made around $1,000 a month. And he was working late nights. It was a dead-end job, going nowhere. Goggins began using food to numb his pains. All the pains that emotionally plagued him. His horrible diet was popping donuts like Tic Tacs and drinking milkshakes constantly. This ballooned him up to 300 pounds. But food at the time was his coping mechanism for all his disappointments in life. One day after Goggins got home from work, he flipped on the TV while he was downing a chocolate milkshake and eating some junk food. A documentary had came on. It was about the Navy SEALs. He was glued to the television. Could this be a way to make a man out of himself? He saw these men as heroes, as warriors. If anything could get him past his fears and make him a hard human being, it was SEAL training. It was Hell Week. Goggins became hooked on this idea. There was one program Goggins found that allowed ex-military to qualify for the SEALs training when he called but it was being discontinued in less than three months, so he had to act fast. But to qualify, he had to be 191 pounds. Well, that's a big problem when you're weighing near 300. So he devised a grueling workout schedule of running, biking, lifting weights over and over, only stopping to eat or sleep. He was obsessed with his dream. Well, guess what? He did drop over 100 pounds in less than three months. Going back and seeing the recruiter, he had made the cut. Now he was off for the most intense, grueling training in the military. The full SEALS training is called BUDS, but the most famous is known as Hell Week. Goggins had done Three because of injuries and pneumonia in one single year never done before so Goggins became one of the elite a Navy SEAL Goggins made some close friends in the Navy SEALs unfortunately some of those friends died in a mission gone wrong this made Goggins want to raise money for the families left behind through doing charity. This is what started his running career. He selected an ultramarathon for his first run. It's what he came up with. It was the only thing he could think of, and he went for it. The promoter said, Goggins needed to qualify by running at least 100 miles in 24 hours. You're not just allowed to say, hey, I want to jump in. I want to do this. They wouldn't do this. This was an ultra marathon. This was one of the most grueling, devastating freaking runs of all the ultra marathons you can run. Maybe the hardest run in the world that you can do. The bad water. But that's the one David picked because he likes doing hard shit. Remember, Goggins at this point had never even trained to run a marathon, which is 26.22 miles. And to qualify for the event, he had to run 100 miles in 24 hours. Now, just think if you would do that right now, would you get up and go out your door and run 100 miles with no fucking training? That's absolutely insane. This qualifying event would show just how hard this dude really is. The biggest pain of his life was coming up. That was this 100-mile trial, the San Diego one day. I, I,
1: even though people don't understand it, I had to do what I had to do. And, you know, and I did it. Like, I didn't tell you how I got into ultra running. You know, there's a lot of things that, so... I, I, I pushed it extremely hard. I, I went way beyond what I thought was capable. Like my first ultra race I did, I was, uh, I was heavier. I was in Iraq. You know, the Marcus Attrelle lone mm-hmm. survivor. I was in Bud's. I was in three hell weeks, as you know, as I said a million times. And I knew a lot of guys that died in the operation. I was at free fall school with Morgan Trail, who's his twin brother, during the operation Red Wings, where Marcus Attrelle's the only survivor. I knew Marcus Attrelle well and I was about 200 some odd pounds, and I didn't run Harley Doll at, at this time. I, I was a SEAL, but I was like a bodybuilder, and I did elliptical trainer 20 minutes on Sunday. That's all I did. That's so all I did. I was, Fuck that cardio stuff. I'm, I, I, I was never about it until this happened, so that happened, and I was like, man, I got to find a way to raise money for these families, so I googled the I I, I found a foundation, Special Operations Warrior Foundation, and I Googled the 10 hardest races in the world. I knew nothing about ultra running. The first I'd ever run was 20 miles at one time. And so what came up was the Badwater 135. 135 135-mile run through Death Valley in the summertime. I thought it was a fucking stage race. I know people can run 135 miles at one time. I had no idea it was possible. What do you mean a stage race? Where you run like 20 miles, camp out, and then run 20 more until you get 135 miles. Right. So I went an ultra runner. to know what ultra runner was. I called the race director up, Chris Costman of the Badwater. And he said, are you an ultra runner? And I was like, I don't know what that is. He goes, have you run 100 miles in 24 hours or less? I was like, no. But I said, I'm a Navy SEAL. I was in three hell weeks. I was a Ranger. I gave him some resume. He didn't give a shit. He said, I don't care. You got to qualify for my race. And the deadline was up in two months for this Badwater race. And basically, he said, there's two more races you can do to qualify. And I might consider you in my race. We select top 90 athletes in the world. And you're not even an ultra runner. But I, I like your cause, like what you're doing. He said, uh, I'll call him up on a Wednesday. <laughs> and he goes, there's a race on Saturday. In San Diego, San Diego one day, where you run around a one mile track for 24 hours. So many miles you can get. If you get 124 hours, I will consider you in my race. I did the math, 14 some minute mile, fuck it. I can do that. Dumb shit thinking, I'll tell you that right now. It was rough. Worst pain I've been in my entire life was this race. So I have my wife at the time, she's now my ex-wife. We go to Walmart, get a blue lawn chair, rich crackers, and Mileplex. That's what I'm gonna have for a hundred-mile run. So, show up at the start line of this race. It was the AUA National Championships. It's like the best ultra runners compete against each other to see how many miles you can get in 24 hours. And I'm this big bodybuilder-looking guy with a shirt. How much off. did you weigh back then? I would say I was at least 230. At least it may have been more. than jacked. Yeah, I, yeah, I was ripped the fuck up. I was I big old chest. I was big I, I was I was jacked up. There's a picture of me. You definitely didn't look like someone who could run a hundred miles. No, not at all. So basically I start running and I get to about mile 40, mile fifty, and I'm feeling pretty good. I get to mile seventy and it was a, the the worst pain of my life. I sat down in this blue lawn chair at mile 70. And my the Ritz Crackers after mile 20 became Ritz Cracker balls. I wasn't hydrating correctly. I didn't know what to do. I was drinking Mileplex for my nutrition because I couldn't eat these Ritz Crackers. Had very minimal water, if any at all, and I was just dying. So I sat down in this blue lawn chair as I was watching all these runners go around in this circle. I was all dizzy and lightheaded. Hadn't gone to the bathroom. It's been about 12 hours. I went 70 miles. In about 12 hours, which is good. And I looked at my ex-wife now, and I was like. I am fucked. And I started seeing like three of her. And once my body stopped, my mind just went off and I had to go to the bathroom. And the bathroom was like, it's like 20 feet away from me, if that. And I couldn't. And so I sat there and peed blood down my leg and started crapping up my back. And with 30 miles to go, I and my feet were broken. I, I was just in the worst shape. Because once you stop running, not running like that, I mean, I had not run in almost a year I was just doing bodybuilding stuff and 20 minutes on an elliptical trainer, no and running at all. I probably ran no shit, no shit, no more than 50 miles the whole year. <laughs> that wasn't my thing. I wanted to be like Jack. You know, I, right. I I didn't want to be cardio guy. I wanted to be rip big Navy Seal guy. And um, and the day before this race is funny. This guy named Joe Burns, who put me through my hell weeks, a SEAL guy. He's one of the hardest guys out there. He was in the gym the Friday before I did this race. And he was doing a full body squats, deadlifts, power cleans. I said, fuck it, man. You know, he, he's the guy that approved me to do this race. You know, he, you know, he gave me the approval to go do this race and signed off on it. So I'm in the gym. I went in there, did a full body, hardcore squats, deadlifts, and everything with this guy. Because I knew he was going to come watch me in this race. So I've always been about, all right, man, you're gonna see me come in here and jack this weight and tomorrow you're gonna watch me do a hundred mile run. Where <laughs> you can think about that? So <laughs> basically I paid for it. So at my, so he came out there with my favorite thing, chocolate, you know, mini donuts, because he knew my story of, of of my past life and brought the six mini donuts out there, and I had my hat pulled down and at mile 70, man, it was torturous. And with blood down my leg and 30 miles to go, I uh I started reaching the cookie jars, man. I started pulling off all kind of stuff. I reached in my mind, and a lot of us, when we have bad times in life, even the hardest person in the world, we forget how badass we are during that hard time. I have a thing where I take a couple seconds to reflect on, hang on, man, you've been through, been through this, you've been through that, you overcame this, overcame that. I don't ever close my mind to the fact that this can't be done. And I knew I had to get up, I needed nutrition, I needed hydration, I needed to get stop being dizzy. So that's the first thing I did. I didn't panic on. I had 30 more miles to go to get 100. I started about the process. Slowly but surely, I was able to stand up. And I was literally hobbling around this track, just walking. No running at all. I couldn't run. My feet were in the worst pain. It's the worst pain I've been in my entire life. Nothing in any training is even comparable to this last 30 miles. And what happened was... My ex-wife looked at me and she's like, man, you're just, we, we agreed I'm not going to make the time. I was going way too slow. And at that time, at mile 81, something clicked that I'll never probably be able to do again. Where my mind, body, spirit, soul, everything just connected. And my mind knew I wasn't fucking around anymore. It knew I wasn't going to quit. It knew that guy was dead and buried and gone. And I was going to die out here on this fucking Walmart for, for whatever reason why I was going to get through this motherfucker. I didn't give a damn. It made no, there, there was no fucking crowds. There was no trophy at the end. There was, I wasn't even in a race in my mind. There was, it was nothing. It wasn't about nothing. There was no nothing. It was a bunch of people who didn't know who the fuck I was. and It was me against me. And I used all these different dark places to start bringing out light and just fucking going deeper and deeper. Ended up running the next 20 miles. I ran 101 miles and I ran the next 20 miles ran at about a 10:30 pace. And I did 101 miles in 18 hours and 56 minutes, sat back down in that blue porta potty now, my chair that got from Walmart, and that's when the body realized I was done, and this great feeling came over me, but also the worst pain in my life. I, that's when I took a humongous shit on myself, <laughs> literally like I like a fucking log up my fucking back, Pissed so much blood down my, and my wife was she was a nurse. And she was freaked out. I couldn't get up. I couldn't stand up. She backed this Camry on the knoll of the grassy area I was at. And we were both lifters at the time. So she was decently strong. I put my arms around her neck. She got me to the backseat of the car, let the windows down, kind of smelled like horrible shit. And I had this poncho on it because it was November in San Diego. So I'm sitting there, Jack Camry in the back of his car. And she was terrified. I need to get to the doctor. I need to get to the doctor. So I said, take me home. So we lived on the second story or or the second deck of this uh, apartment complex in in San Diego. I got to the first deck, so I I get a car and I could stand up, but but with my arms around her neck, so I was just leaning down because I was gonna pass out. Got to the second or I got to the first deck, went down, just couldn't stand up anymore. Got up around her neck, worked up my way up the uh, railing, got my you know you know got my arms around her neck again, walked to the kitchen area which was right in the front door. I was laying on the poncho liner, crap was everywhere. I managed. She helped me manage to get into the to- into the tub, and it looked like dirt was coming out of my penis. This looked horrible. Just just the grossest thing in the world. It was the worst pain I can ever, ever, ever be in in my life. And the craziest thing. I tell you a story because of this right now I'm not sadistic. I'm not crazy. People may think that they might They may want to put a title on me after hearing me because it makes them feel better. Because they think, wow, this guy must be some special or just fucked up crazy dude. No. I'm a guy that came from nothing. Anybody's capable of doing shit like this. Anybody. And I sat in that tub. She put the water on me. She called my mom up. And my mom was dating a doctor at the time. The, doc- the doctor said, you need to get him to a hospital now. She came back in. All I wanted to do is call Chris Costner on the phone, the race director of Badwater. I fucking did it. So she said, I'm taking it to the doctor. I said, no, let me sit here and enjoy this pain. She said, what are you talking about? I said, "You know," I go. I need to go to the doctor. I realized that, but I never thought it was humanly possible to do what I did. I went seventy miles, and at seventy miles, I was dead. I was at a hundred percent what I thought. What I thought was a hundred percent. I went thirty. I went thirty-one more miles after being in the worst physical shape I've ever been in in my life, and all the. All that pain and suffering and thing was going through my fucking body as I sat in that tub and, and, and the waters hit me. And it was the most amazing feeling of accomplishment and I want to be numb. I want people to give me drugs and, and to numb this fucking pain. I wanted to, I did this. I over, and as crazy as it sounds, it was the most amazing moment of my entire life to overcome such, to come from this kid who was mentally tortured himself and was tortured, it's all, to this kid, to this guy now, who was able to overcome such amazing odds and obstacles. And I called Chris Cosmo, the race director of Badwater, and he said, The idea of a 24 hour race is to run 24 hours. You only ran 19. And he put doubt in my mind that he would let me into Badwater. So a month later or so, about a month and a half later, I went to this race called the Hurt 100. It's a 100 mile race in Hawaii, 26,000 feet of climb. That calm. was
0: all he said?
1: That's all he said. <laughs>
0: That's so crazy. He,
1: I mean, he, he's a hardcore dude, but he right. didn't know how fucked up I was. Right. And he said, he, he didn't say, you know, he, like he didn't say, no, I'm not going to let you in. He put enough doubt in my mind and say, man, I got to do more. So I was broken. I was broken bad. And like, how it, long did it take you to recover physically? The funniest thing about this, I don't tell a story very often. I had signed up for, I'm getting to that answer, it's right now. I went on deployment and me and my wife, my mom signed up for the first Las Vegas marathon down the strip of Las Vegas. And that incident happened. So I ran a hundred miles before I ran a, a marathon. Two weeks later, roughly December 5th was this marathon that we all signed up for. I couldn't walk. I could not walk. I was fucked up. So 10 days or two weeks after this 100-mile in one race I did, um, this marathon, December 5th in Las Vegas. I said, you know what? It's the first one. I can't run. Maybe I can walk with my mom. So I tried to go out to this little knoll around our grassy area in San Diego. I tried tried to run. Legs were broken. I said, fuck, I can't even. I'm jacked. can't do shit. So I said, you know what? Maybe I'll watch you guys do the marathon, and I'll cheer you guys on, whatever. And I said, I'll try to walk with my mom. December fifth happened. That gun went off. Two thousand five. Fourteen days after I broke myself off, and I qualified for the Boston Marathon. I ran three hundred eight. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. And what's funny about it? I know people are here say, this motherfucker." Even when I tell you the story, I drop. I, I want to drop so many names. Google it. Look it up. I don't give a fuck. Like it almost seems like I'm making my own story up. It does. It almost seems like it to you. It does. Like, like, like when I tell it, if I were to hear somebody, like let's say I listen to you know, listen to your Joe Rogan's podcast, I heard some black dude from fucking Brazil and talking about this happened, this happened. Three hell weeks, Ranger school, ran hundred miles, broke my feet, broke my body. I'm like, this mother, he's the biggest fucking liar on the planet. Ain't nobody doing that shit. See, even when I tell him my story. It almost sounds like um, some made-up shit. So, yeah, well, 14 What's so later. crazy is you ran 100 miles before you ever ran a marathon. Right. Then you didn't run again at all, and you still qualified for the Boston Marathon. So you ran a 308 Right. for the first marathon you ever did. Ever did. Two weeks after you ran 100 miles right. with no training and nothing in between.
0: So that's some crazy shit here in that story. This guy is driven beyond what anyone in this world is that I personally know, how can you get a mindset like Mr. Goggins get insanely obsessed just to where you will not stop no matter what, no matter what the pain, no matter what the cost to follow through? How do you get a mindset like Goggins? So the answer to life's toughest problems or your greatest fears is not what most people want to hear. It's work ethic. That's Goggins' prescription. Face your fucking fears. Face your fucking problems. Do it over and over until you win. Defeat is not an option. Callous your mind like you would your hands by returning every day over and over until you succeed. Dig deep in your darkest moments. And remember, any time that you have won before, and use that recall, pull it up. Anytime you overcome adversity or an enemy, use it for strength or energy or for confidence when you have none. Do the hard things. Seek them out and destroy them. Don't accept mediocrity. Goggins says fuck being comfortable. If you stay there one day you will have tons of regret all about who you could have been what you could have done regrets nobody wants to live with regrets or die with them David has a very special rule called the 40% rule There's no scientific validity behind it, but his philosophy absolutely rings true to me and I believe it will to you as well. So listen up and here is Goggins explaining his 40% rule for you to use yourself.
1: I believe that most human beings are only living at about 40% of their capability. so. The mind has a governor, like a car. If you're driving a car and the car has a governor on it, the car may say 130 miles an hour, but the governor set for 91. Once that governor sets in, you get to 91, that car starts doing this. The car wants to go. The car wants to go, but that factory said, uh-uh, we're not going past 91. We have a factory, a nice governor in our brain, and it's a survival mechanism. It protects us from pain and suffering. The second we feel that, our mind says, oh, no, this isn't fun. We should back off. We should sit down, find something more comfortable. And there's something about the mind. The mind has the tactical advantage over you at all times, at all times of your life. The mind has a tactical advantage over you. Why is that? It knows what you're afraid of. It knows your insecurities. It knows your deep, dark lies. And it starts to push you away from that. It pushes you in a direction that is comfortable. The mind controls everything. So what I realized was that when I was growing up and I was 300 pounds and I got all fat and I got all insecure, I realized that my mind kept taking me in this direction, when things got uncomfortable for me, when I was facing my insecurities, when I was facing my fears, my mind said, oh no, we have the tactical advantage. We need to get you, separate you from this feeling. This feeling over here, life's all about feelings. We want the happy feeling. We don't want that feeling of this sucks. Why am I here? So you can't answer those questions, so you leave. I started realizing that if in that moment you can answer those questions, And you are now in charge of your brain versus your brain ruling you. That's where all that stuff comes from. So the 40% rule is all of that. You get to 40%, your brain says, we're done. Let's roll, man. This is starting to get painful. This is uncomfortable. So you sit down. It's a habit. So if you know that at 40%, I'm feeling pain. At 40%, I'm feeling pain. That's where the 40% rule kicks in. Now it starts, okay, I'm I'm feeling pain, my mind's saying, get out of here, run, flee, the fight or flight kicks in. Okay, we're done, we're not good enough. It starts telling you all these things, you start to believe it, because the mind controls all. This is the time where you have to gain control back of your mind. It's okay, let me see if I can go 45%. And once you start giving yourself more and more hope, you start realizing, okay, the mind starts to be, okay, what are you doing? We're supposed to be going right, and you're going left. You start then controlling your mind. Start finding more in yourself, and then it goes from 40% to a lot further than that. But that's the start of it, though. Get to the spot where your mind is saying stop. Wherever that is, you got to get there first, and then that's when that starts to work for you. You got to control yourself in that moment.
0: And there you go. That's it. That's Mr. Goggins for you. He's raw. He's uncut. He's uncensored. He keeps it real. Gotta love the guy for that. So I recommend you check out any of his interviews or videos that he's in. There's nothing but good stuff to learn about this guy. As long as you can handle the, the cursing, the foul mouth that he has, because there's not many episodes I've found that he holds back and doesn't curse. He likes to be who he is, a real human being that likes to share his story with every last curse word that he needs to toss around to share that being included. So bear with it, listen to it. It has power. It has velocity. It can move you. It can change you if you let it. So I love this guy. He's freaking awesome. Definitely a new hero of mine and he'll stay that way. So anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode of Keeping It Real. All about the beast, Mr. Goggins. So going forward into the future, please subscribe, leave a good review for me and help other people find this show. Thanks for joining me today and I look forward to seeing you in the future goodbye to all of you folks out there in podcast land, and much love. Signing out. Later. Keeping it real. Do not consider these episodes as medical advice or expertise in any area. I do deconstruct some experts in their material and deliver it to Please do all this at your own risk.